This is Joel chapter two, starting in verse one. We'll be reading a selection of verses. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Skip to verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened and their stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not relent uh, turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room in the brighter chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Skip to verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream, vision, dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You may be seated. Thanks be to God for his word. As I said at the outset, our big idea for this morning is this concept of the day of the Lord. Joel writes about it. It actually shows up in Amos, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. It shows up all over the place. And it also shows up in the New Testament, Second Peter, First and Second Thessalonians, Revelation, and of course the Gospels when Jesus speaks of his second coming. But how do we make sense of this concept of the day of the Lord from an Old Testament prophet who lived more than 2,500 years ago? And what does it mean for us today? I want you to see that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, but also a day of salvation for God's people. You see, it depends on your circumstances. The day of the Lord is a day that brings salvation through judgment and it calls us to repentance and it assures us of God's mercy. Let's dive in and understand this a little bit more. We don't know much about Joel. We know what his name means, Yoel, which means Jehovah is God. 
We also know his father's name. If you were to glance at verse one of chapter one, it says his father's name was Pethuel, which means God persuades. Interesting to think about the meaning of Joel and his father's names when it comes to a text like this. But what do we, how, how do we define this day of the Lord? What is it like? How can we begin to start to understand this concept of God acting and judging and saving at the same time? And I want you to think of your favorite sports team. If it's the Dolphins, my deepest condolences to you. Their season's over. We can hope that next year is the Dolphins year. But when you think of that sports team, what happens every time the season comes around? The deepest, truest fans know this is the day, this is the year that's defined by my team. We're gonna win, we've got the people in place, we're gonna go all the way to the top, we're gonna be supreme. That's what Joel's getting at when he talks about the day of the Lord. It's a day of supremacy for God. When God shows up and God acts, everybody looks. When God works, he is supreme, he is sovereign in it. And that is, that can be scary for some, but it can also be the greatest assurance and thing we pray for, for others who are found in him. So let's begin to look at that. Look at verses one through 11 of chapter two. We skipped a bunch of these verses, but they all go about describing the announcement of disaster, the announcement of God's pending judgment. Why is it a disaster? Why do we sound, why does Joel say, sound the trumpet in Zion? Let the people know, alert them to the fact that the Lord is coming. Because God's presence cannot exist in the same place as sin. It's our sin that causes this judgment. So God's really revealing his character about who he is, that he is just, that he comes to make things right, that he is in control of all things, that wickedness and evil cannot pervade in his presence. We see the announcement of disaster in verse one, and then verses two and on, we start to see the description and the depiction of this day of judgment, what it looks like for God to judge. It's dark, it's gloomy, there are clouds, there, it's like there's a powerful people coming after them that devours everything in front of them. If you were to look, we don't have the time this morning, but if you were to study this in more depth, you'd see that chapters one and two are mirror images of each other. In chapter one, Joel recounts a past day of the Lord in which a plague of locusts wiped out all the crops so much that the animals and the people had nothing. Even the drunks in verse five are upset because they don't have any wine to get drunk on because the locusts ate all the vines. And so you can see the utter devastation that comes when it went with regard to God's judgment. And you'll see too in verse six that the people are in anguish, that faces are pale, that, that this is something that should not be taken lightly. But we also see the scope of God's judgment in verse 10, which we did read this morning. The scope of God's judgment. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon and the stars withdraw their shining. These are constants. I don't know about you, but when I wake up, I pretty much assume the earth's gonna be there and not be shaking. I assume when I put my daughter to bed, I even tell her, you can't come into our room until Mr. Sun comes up because we're talking about something that happens every day and I'm trying to get some extra sleep. She's two, so we give her a break here and there. But 
you can see that Joel talks about it in this way because he's trying to get our attention. He's saying that this day when God shows up, even the celestial beings are not outside of the picture. There's, everything is affected. And his reason for that is in verse 11. When the Lord utters his voice before his army, he executes his word in power. The day of the Lord is great and awesome. Who can endure it? This, of course, is a rhetorical question because if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, I don't know, I can't endure it. There's no way I can stand up to God's judgment if the sun and moon and this, this force of him making things right is, is something that I think I can stand up to. I'm just kidding myself. But ultimately, we see here that God is supreme and sovereign. I want you to stop a minute and think about this concept of judgment. Many people think that God changed his character. Old Testament version of God is like gloom and doom and judgment and darkness, blood, fire, smoke, all these things. And the New Testament God let off the oppression pedal and he's just gracious and kind and loving and goes along with everything in the New Testament. But no, I want you to see that both go hand in hand, that God is holy and that holiness cannot tolerate the presence of sin. But also I want you to see that he is gracious even in the fact of judgment. I'm from Colorado, and so there's places where you walk around where there's grass and dirt and rattlesnake holes, and you can hear the rattlesnake. I did this in the first service with the microphone. Indulge me again. A rattlesnake tail sounds like this. That warns you. The rattlesnake didn't have to do that. If you're just walking along, it could have just snapped you right away if you step on it. But it warns you with its tail in order to help you avoid bad consequences. Have you ever thought about judgment that way? All of these passages that seem at first glance to be oppressive and unfair are actually just reality. God is holy, righteous, and sovereign and his even telling us about them, even spelling them out in places like chapter one and two of Joel are a mercy to us, to catch our attention, to alert us to the fact that he is above it all. He is sovereign, he is just, he is holy. Who in the world could endure this? No one, no one. But just as the Bible talks about judgment, it also gives us a remedy for that judgment. It gives us a refuge so that we are able to be spared, so that we can endure. And this is the second point for this morning, that the day of the Lord is not just a day of judgment, it's a day of salvation for those who repent. It's a call to repentance, and we see this is the great turning point in the whole book of Joel, and I would argue in the whole of our faith this is the turning point, repentance. Look at verse 12, it says, even now, even in the face of this insurmountable, unstoppable exposure to God and his holiness, return to me with all your heart. With fasting, that's action. With mourning and weeping, that's emotion. You can see Joel's talking about sincerity here. And if that wasn't enough, he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. You see, it was a practice in ancient Israel to tear your clothes 
as an outward act of repentance to show that you are remorse for your sin, that you messed up and that you're torn apart because of it. Some people even sat in sackcloth and ashes to take it a step further. But Joel is saying, don't just get caught up with the outward display of going through the motions because God cares about the heart. He cares about the transformation of your heart. So tear your heart, be exposed before God in your heart, knowing that even your desires apart from him would lead you to wickedness and destruction. But ultimately we'll see the great promise of how he remedies this situation. If we were to go on, we can see that this repentance is not just limited to leaders or certain people, it's all encompassing. He says in verse 16, gather the people. Which people? The elders, the children, even the nursing infants. My wife texted me, uh, we love the brass, but my two-month-old couldn't quite handle it underneath the antiphonals, so she's in the back. But we love you, nursing infants and mothers and fathers who bring your kids into worship, who set this time apart to be a all-inclusive community of people that turn to the Lord in repentance. How else are we to learn? Don't underestimate the blessings of God's transformation that happen when his people gather and turn to him in repentance and faith. Our kids need to see this. So I just take a moment as your family pastor to commend you in that and to say we love families in worship and we love our children's team and the children's volunteers that serve each and every week to help make that possible. But ultimately, we see that nothing is more important than being right with God. That's why Joel says, let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride her room. Even your own wedding is not as important as being made right with God. That's the union that matters. What's Joel getting at in all of this? He's calling out phony repentance and urging people to return to their God, to see the truth about their sin because of who he is, and to come to terms with the judge of the universe. Now I say come to terms pretty lightly because the only thing we actually bring to God is our need for him. He sets the terms. That's why Joel says in verse 17, between the vestibule, that's like our, a narthex of the Old Testament, between the vestibule and the altar, let the people and the priests, in other words, let everyone in the building cry out to God and say, spare us, Lord, have mercy on us. That is the correct response when we face God, our judge and our king. But ultimately, how do we do this? How is this even possible, turning to God with all your heart in every circumstance all the time? I don't know about you, but I, I find it hard to do that. I find it hard to let the walls down. I think to myself, well, I, I repented yesterday. I should be good to go. Or, you know, this actually happened to me. I went to the prayer service last Wednesday, our, our night of worship and prayer, and I cried in public. So I'm good for a week, right? That's what I think to myself sometimes. Wow, I was really remorse for that. I really put it on. And it's not about the outward display. It's about crying out to God and, and seeing who he is and allowing him to work. But ironically, the only refuge we have in the face of God's judgment is God's face. It's God. That's why Joel says, who in the world can endure this? So what happens? How is this possible? 
Where's, where's the hope, pastor? I mean, I can repent, sure, but where is the assurance? Well, he's given it to us. Look at verse 13. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. This is why. This is our great motivation, people of God. And don't miss this. It's saturated in the hymns we sang this morning. For he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Is that not good news, people of God, that he does this for us? That, he, that our, our repentance is brought about because, not because of his wrath, but because of his kindness. That's straight out of Romans 2. God's kindness is meant to turn our hearts towards him in repentance. Wow. Let's just take a minute and pause. He won't just turn your heart to him, though. He'll turn all of you into the image of him. By faith. That's what the rest of this book is about. God defeating the enemies, making all things new, restoring the land and the people, and actually dwelling with them. Not just making it right from afar, but entering into the brokenness to make it right. So you're saying, Pastor, I can let the walls down and be honest with God, and it'll just magically be okay? Verse 32 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that it? Is it that easy? Sounds too good to be true. Sounds to me like God's doing a 180. It's doom and gloom and judgment and darkness and blood and smoke, and then all of a sudden he's saying, anyone who calls out to me can be saved? What's going on? I'm missing something. Martin Luther said, if you take Christ out of the scriptures, you don't have anything left. Pretty interesting when you consider this passage today. And I really believe that. I really believe that what Joel saw was only a shadow of the fulfillment that would come through Christ, through his work. That Christ came first as savior. Isn't that the best picture of judgment and salvation happening at the same time? It's the cross. It's the cross where Jesus experienced the full weight of God's judgment and wrath, where the end times judgment that's described here in Joel with this unstoppable force where even the celestial beings can't hang in there is poured out. You remember the crucifixion account from, from Matthew? From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that's from, from 12 noon to three o'clock, darkness covered the land. That's because Jesus took a taste of that, took all of it for us, he experienced the judgment in order to bring about our salvation and our deliverance. This is the great hope of mercy. We have to look to Christ. We can see it spelled out here, but we see it fulfilled in Christ. I'm gonna confess to you, I'm not a biblical scholar, an expert of Old Testament uh, you know, literature where I could date this and tell you exactly when it's written or exactly what every line in prophecy or pointing to or when they were fulfilled, but that's not the message of Joel. He's not saying, watch out for locusts. He's not saying, when the solar eclipse happens, you'll know. He's saying, know who God is, the severity of judgment for those who are found in sin, repent from it, and cling to God for his mercy. Find assurance of God's mercy, even in the judgment. God is supreme. And I think 
What I do know, though, is what Jesus says. I didn't come to, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So I can take full assurance that this passage is completed, yes and amen, in Christ, in what he does, in what he has done, in what he will do, that ultimately he will reign supreme. I'm reminded also of Acts 1, which says, it's not for you, Jesus telling his disciples, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but it is your job and your duty to be witnesses of me when the Holy Spirit comes on you, to witness to the majesty and glory of our God and to call people to repentance. That's actually what Peter says in Acts 2. Right after saying that this prophecy of Joel, chapters two, verse 28, where he says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons shall prophesy, men shall see dreams. God's spirit is poured out unreservedly on those who call out to him by faith. That picture was fulfilled in Acts two at Pentecost when the early Christians were, had, had tongues of fire above them and they spoke in languages that they, they didn't know originally. And it was that God's name and fame and glory and power might be known to a watching world and that people would ultimately do this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's why we repent, for the forgiveness of our sins, so that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and this promise is not just for you, but it's for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. I don't know about you, but I hear so many parallel, uh, parallel words here between Acts and Joel. I can't help but honor God for the way that Christ has fulfilled them and the way that he continues to do that by advancing his kingdom through his church, through you, through his people, spirit-filled, God-honoring, repentant, faithful people. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, gave him up to judgment, the judgment we deserved, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. There is great hope and assurance of mercy even in the face of God's judgment because he has given it to us in his word and he has displayed it through the person and work of Jesus. So I pray that this morning, that God has taught us through Joel, albeit a quick look at Joel, that he is sovereign and that we are called to repentance, but that ultimately we can be assured of his mercy for us and his steadfast love in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But you know, this doctrine of judgment, it's important because it still exists, it's still pertinent today. Christ's first coming was to come as Savior to fulfill the law and the prophets, to absolve for our sin. His second coming is to join with Christians, but to judge the world in righteousness and truth. Are you found in him today? Have you cried out to him for salvation, knowing that God's character and his word exposes us of our sin? Every time we read scripture, we should ask ourselves that question. Who is God? Who am I inside or out of Christ, my Savior? Out of Christ, we're destined for judgment. 
but in Christ we can be assured that all the judgment has been poured out and taken on and that he has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. What good news for us this morning. Believe in him today. Believe in him in your heart and be justified, be made right with God by knowing that this is true and confess it with your mouth so that you may be saved. You won't be put to shame. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this word, this difficult word from Joel, this confusing word at times, but we know that your word doesn't return void and that even the confusing passages can be made clear because you have revealed everything we need for life and godliness and salvation in this, your word. We thank you and we trust that it is a firm foundation that though all hell should endeavor to shake, will never, no, never forsake. God, help us to turn to you, your people, once again, not because we deserve it, we know we don't, but because you paid for it all with Jesus. You turned your face away from him in his moment of need in order that his, your judgment would be fulfilled so that we, when you return, we, your people, trusting in you by faith, would be absolved and saved by grace. We know and we believe and cling to this, Christ and him crucified. Let all else fade away. God, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for encouraging your people. And if there's anything that I've said that was confusing, would you cause it to slip away that your word might remain? It's in Christ, powerful and wonderful and merciful and gracious name we pray, amen.